Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps to get close to you. It can look like anyone, but there's only one of it. Sometimes I think it looks like people you love just to hurt you. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers, bringing you our 250th episode. 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 (laughs) (laughs) And we didn't plan this, it just happened to kind of land here. That's right. But But, yeah, this is one of those movies that came out almost 10 years ago that I think is uh, part of the resurgence of horror that made us interested in actually starting a podcast to begin with. That's correct. Even though our podcast has only been in existence for almost six, almost six years. I was about to get the number wrong again. Chris and I saw this movie in the theater together and we really started having even more conversations about horror movies. And eventually those conversations led to the film flamers. It did. Yeah, that and the birds. That's right. The birds and copycat and all the things. Everything else, yeah. We're talking about It Follows. We are. What is It Follows? It Follows... Uh, is a 2014 American horror film written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. It stars, I say Micah Monroe? Yeah. Okay. As a young woman who is pursued by a supernatural entity after a sexual encounter, Kira Gilchrist, Daniel Zovato, Jake Weary, Olivia Lucardi, and Lily Seppe appear in supporting roles. The score was composed by Rich Vreeland, better known as Disaster Piece. I love that name. Disaster piece? Yeah. Or Vreeland? Disaster piece. Disaster piece. I know. It's amazing. Much like the score. Hmm. Mitchell started writing the film back in 2011 while working on a separate film he intended to be his second feature film. However, Mitchell struggled with this would-be second feature and made It Follows as his next film instead. Mitchell realized that the concept he was working on was tough to describe and thus refused to discuss the plot when asked what he was working on, reasoning later, quote, when you say it out loud, it sounds like the worst thing ever. Kind of does. Yeah. I mean, if you just like break it down to its bones, you're like, okay. Yeah. Except, you know, like I really do like the distillation of the STD, mm-hmm. sexually transmitted demon. <laughs> Love it. Okay, listeners. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps it get close to you. This is It Follows. I used to daydream about being old enough to go on dates. I had this image of myself holding hands with a really cute guy driving along some pretty road. It's never about going anywhere, really. It's having some sort of freedom, I guess. <laughs> Jay, are you awake? What is he doing? You're not going to believe me, and I need you to remember what I'm saying. This thing, it's going to follow you. Somebody gave it to me, and I passed it to you. Wherever you are, it's somewhere walking straight for you. All you can do is pass it along to someone else. I'm scared. I need to find him. What did he really do to you? 
Apparently he used a fake name to rent a house in the city. This isn't real, I swear to you, this is just some game. If it kills her, it gets me. It goes straight down the line whoever started it. What exactly is supposed to be following you? I don't know. Something happened. That's not what she thinks, okay? You don't believe me. Mom? No, it's me. Everything's okay. It could look like someone you know, or it could be a stranger in a crowd. Whatever helps it get close to you. Carefree University student Jay, played by Micah Monroe, goes to a movie with her new boyfriend, Hugh, played by Jake Weary. Hugh points out a girl in a yellow dress whom Jay says she can't see. Unnerved, Hugh asks that they leave. In what can only be considered the height of romance, Hugh and Jay have sex for the first time in his car in a parking lot of an abandoned building. Caught up in the afterglow, Jay dreamily talks about her teenage expectations of relationships, so Hugh incapacitates her with chloroform. She wakes up tied to a wheelchair inside of the abandoned building, where Hugh explains that he has passed something onto her through intercourse. She will be pursued by an entity that only they can see, which can take the appearance of any person. Its name? Donna Rhea. <laughs> Donna Rhea Drip. <laughs> its name? Chlamydia Champagne. <laughs> it moves at a walking pace but always knows where she is and will be approaching at all times. If it catches Jay, it'll kill her and pursue the previous person to have passed it on. Hugh waits until a naked woman slowly approaches them to prove Jay is being followed, then urges her to have sex with someone else soon to pass it on. He drives Jay home, pushes her out of the car, and flees. The next day, the police cannot find the naked woman or Hugh. At school, Jay sees an old woman walking towards her, invisible to others, and flees. Jay's sister Kelly and her longtime friends Paul, Kier Gilchrist, and Yara spend the night at Jay's house. Someone smashes a window, and Paul investigates but sees no one. Jay then sees a disheveled, urinating, half-naked woman walking towards her and runs upstairs to the others, who cannot see the entity. When a tall man enters the bedroom, Jay flees the house by bike. With the help of their neighbor, Greg, played by Daniel Zavato, the group discovers Hugh's real name, Jeff Redmond, and finds his home. Jeff explains that the entity began pursuing him after a one-night stand, and reiterates that the only option is to sleep with someone else and implore them to do the same. He recommends that Jay drive to a distant location to buy herself time to think. Greg knows just the place and drives the group to his family's lake house. The next day on the lakefront, While Greg leaves to pee, the entity arrives in the form of Yara and attacks Jay from behind by grabbing her hair, which is witnessed by her friends. She flees in Greg's car and crashes, then wakes up in the hospital with a broken arm. In what can only be considered the height of romance and to buy herself time, Jay has sex with Greg in the hospital. Greg denies the existence of the entity despite the insistence of Jay's friends. Later, Jay sees the entity in the form of Greg walking towards Greg's house. It smashes a window and enters. 
Jay runs to the house and finds the entity in the form of Greg's half-naked mother attacking and killing Greg by having weird, gross, bloody sex. Jay flees by car and spends the night outdoors. Back home, Paul, willing to take the risk, asks Jay to pass it on to him, but she refuses. The group plans a last-ditch effort to kill the entity by luring it into a swimming pool and dropping electrical devices into the water. Jay waits in the pool until the entity arrives, wearing the appearance of her father. Instead of entering the pool, it throws the devices at her. Firing at an invisible target, Paul accidentally wounds Yara, but shoots the entity twice before it falls into the pool. As it pulls Jay underwater, Paul shoots it again, and Jay escapes as it sinks to the bottom. When Paul asks if it's dead, Jay approaches the pool and silently watches as it fills with blood. Back at Jay's house, in what can only be considered the height of romance, Jay and Paul have sex. Paul drives through town, passing sex workers, presumably to pass the entity on to someone who is sure to continue the line far away from Jay and Paul. Hopefully, that sex worker doesn't have any PTO plans soon. (laughs) Yara recovers at a hospital. Later, Jay and Paul walk down the street holding hands. A figure walks behind them. The... End? Yes. Yes. (laughs) The very, very end. It Follows premiered at the 67th Cannes Film Festival on May 17th, 2014. It opened in a limited release in the U.S. on March 13th, 2015 on four screens and earned a little more than $163,000 that weekend, debuting at number 30 at the box office. The film opened widely on March 27th and fared much better, earning $3.8 million and landing the fifth spot. That was an increase of 1,005% from its second weekend <laughs> release. <laughs> it follows would eventually go on to earn almost $22 million worldwide against a budget of $1.3 Yeah, that's just like 20 times the amount with very little marketing, I feel like. Yeah. So there's a lot of word of mouth with this. Yeah. I mean, they started out with a very, very, very limited release, like four screens. Yeah. That's crazy, you know? And then its second week wasn't much better. And then it just opened super widely. And I feel like over the next several weeks, like people started talking about this movie. Like I didn't see it until several weeks after its release. You saw it before I did, I believe. Maybe. And then like took me to see it. Oh yeah. Cause I was just like, you have to see this. And we had to go all the way to Dallas County to see this movie. Cause it wasn't playing anywhere. That's right. County, yeah. Right? Yeah. It was that limited. Like eventually. Cause we like, really got excited because I really needed someone to talk about. Yes. That had the vernacular. And I had already wanted to see it because, like, there was so much buzz coming out of Cannes. And then, like, when it opened, I was like, I'm never going to be able to see this because it's not going to play anywhere close by. Yeah. Thankfully, I have a very good friend who's willing to drive to the next county over because I don't want to do that shit. Mm. So, thank you. Well, you're welcome. But, uh, you know, thank you to this uh, director, I guess. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> thank you to the, the new vogue of movies that have come out, you know, in the 2010s. For sure. It Follows has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score sits at 66 for some reason. The site's consensus reads, Smart, original, and above all terrifying, It Follows is the rare modern horror film that works on multiple levels and leaves a lingering sting. Mm. 
On Rotten Tomatoes aggregation, it was ranked as the sixth most praised film of the year and the ninth most praised horror film of the 2010s overall. On review aggregator website Metacritic, the film has an average rating of 83 out of 100 based on 37 critics, indicating universal acclaim. David Rooney of The Hollywood Reporter said, Creepy, suspenseful, and sustained. This skillfully made lo-fi horror movie plays knowingly with genre tropes and yet never winks at the audience, giving it a refreshing face value earnestness that makes it all the more gripping. Oh, I love the uh, lo-fi earnestness right? stuff. That's, that's nice. I didn't read these before. It's so fitting, though. Yeah. Tim Tim Roby of The Daily Telegraph gave the film five out of five stars and said, with its marvelously suggestive title and thought-provoking exploration of sex, this indie chiller is a contemporary horror fan's dream come true. I would have said wet dream come true, but I mean, that's just my poetry. A critic on the AV Club said, despite all the fun to unpack ideas swirling around Mitchell's premise, this is the first and foremost a showcase for its considerable talents as a widescreen visual stylist, which are most apparent in the movie's deftly choreographed virtuoso 360-degree pans. Here, here. Mm-hmm. Mike Pereira of Bloody Disgusting described the film as a creepy, mesmerizing exercise in minimalist horror and labeled it as a, quote, classical horror masterpiece. Michael Nordin of Vice named It Follows as the best horror film in years, and critic Frauenfelder called it the best horror film in over a decade. It certainly was very, very fresh to me whenever we saw it. Oh, it was it was like such a celebration of everything that had come before it and then yep. like unlocked the door for things that came after. Just got people kind of felt about Hereditary and Babadook, but it was mm-hmm. kind of one of those peers at that time. And this is one of the earlier ones, I think. Yep. And uh, you know, I definitely feel that you know, popularity breeds contempt. And so a lot of those people, at least 33% of the audience, apparently, yeah. do not like this movie. Which I don't understand. Like, I feel like... I've heard them say it's boring. I don't get that. I've okay. heard them say it's judgy because they they really take, you know, the the sur- very the most surface level mm. meaning of this film and just like run with it, I guess. Yeah, we'll get into that because I disagree with it being judgy about sex. Hmm. Um, it does have some accolades, however. At the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Horror Film, but it lost to Crimson Peak. What? Big mistake. Huge. Big. Huge. <laughs> Some people really love that movie. Um, I think it's my sister is one of them. She pretty, absolutely loves them. Yeah. You know, I mean, but my God, it follows though. Yeah, for real. Fangoria Chainsaw Awards gave it best score, best actress and best wide release film. Wow. Finally. And at the Independent Spirit Awards, it was nominated for best cinematography, best editing and best director. Nothing from the DFW critics. <laughs> No, I scoured every single nomination just to see, because you know I will include it. It did have a win and a nomination from the Golden Schmoes, mm. which I do like to include, but I was just like, I feel like this is enough accolades. Probably. Yeah. But as far as like city film critics, like um, it was on almost all the major cities. You know what yeah. I mean? So people, people really liked this movie, both as a film and a horror film. And I feel like, you know, it Got a lot of praise and it was well-deserved, for sure. Well, speaking of its accolades and legacy, right, we've got Micah Monroe as kind of like a standout here as the lead, Jay, right? But she also was in The the Guest that year. So she had a fantastic 2014 double feature coming out of the gate, right? And since then, she's been in Tao, which I never saw. That was like a Netflix horror psychological thriller or trap movie, I think. Mm-hmm. And in Watcher, which we actually got to see a premiere at The Overlook. So good. Which was amazing. And you can see that now, I think, on Shudder. Mm-hmm. 
uh, maybe even elsewhere. I'm not sure. Uh, God is a Bullet, which we covered the trailer for but never saw. It just came out last year. And then Long Legs, which we've literally just talked about in the last Shooting the Flames. This is coming out this year. Yeah. yeah. With uh, Nicolas Cage, and she's playing the, the detective. I remember watching this movie for the first time with you in the theater and just like being completely strucken <laughs> by Micah Moreau. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's like stricken? she's she's amazing, huh? Stricken? No, stricken? I wanted to say stricken. I said that on purpose. I said that on purpose. Because <laughs> that's what she did to me. Like, I thought she was amazing in this movie. Like, she had just the most amazing presence. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I thought, my God, we're going to see so many good things from this woman as an actress. Never in my wildest dreams could I have imagined the kind of genre career that she has had so far. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like some of her biggest roles and some of the things that she's talked about the most for are like just straight up genre work. Yeah. And I really like it when, when actors um, sort of like stick to that, that kind of like work and roles, you know what I mean? So like um, who's the one from X and Maxine Um, psycho bitch. Yeah. The one that's kicked people in the head. Yeah. You know, Uh, like her Mia Goth. A lot of her work is very genre-esque too, you know? And I feel like Micah Monroe is, she's been kind of like straddling the line between like really avant-garde kind of like independent type horror movies and genre work. And then also we'll get some roles in like larger films, you know? And I'm just really, really happy that she's getting all this work because I think she's a very gifted actress. Yeah. And I'm surprised she's not actually bigger than she is. Same. You know, and I feel like that's that's a good thing, too. You know, I, I, I like that she is getting work and staying kind of quiet. And I think like the right circles of people get excited when they see her name mentioned. Like whenever we were at that very first Overlook Festival for us and Watcher was on the list, like I was like, it sounds like a really good movie. But once I saw her name attached to it, I was like, 100 percent, we're going to go watch this. Like yeah. there's there's no way we're skipping this movie. Yeah, she was definitely a draw for us. Mm-hmm. Just having remember her from It Follows. And she will continue to be probably for the rest of time. Yeah. I don't remember the rest of this cast as much. I don't know them from other, other things like you'll cure Gilchrist and um, Olivia Licardi, Daniel Zavato. I think they've been in a lot of TV possibly and some other like independent films and things like that. But I'm not, I'm just not really super familiar with their careers Same. and I can't really point to anything big in the horror verse that they would be attached to as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, it's not like they're unrecognizable. I feel like if I saw them places, you know, I'd be like, oh, it follows. But maybe because I've seen this movie so many times. Um, I will say out of the group, like the two friends, right? So Paul and Yara, like Kier, Gilchrist and Olivia Lucardi, like they kind of like stood out for me. I thought they were really, really good. Not to say that the rest of the cast is not, you know, but um, I just really liked their placement in this. I thought that they added to the story and didn't detract from it. I felt that they needed to be there in ways that the rest of the cast members kind of did not. Yeah. So they definitely have their place and I think they're important. And I, I kind of wish I'd seen them more of them as well. But you know, if there is someone standout, it's Micah Monroe. Yes, very, very much. Uh, but let's shift gears a little bit and talk about this director okay. and kind of his overall a little bit. He came out with Virgin, which was a short, and then he came out with a movie called the myth of the American sleepover which is also kind of like an exploration of a vibe from a certain time of life, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, it's also about like losing your virginity and all of that stuff, kind of like that gateway from, you know, uh, childhood to adulthood. Right. And um, 
interestingly, his next feature after that was It Follows. And I think the movie that he was having trouble with that was meant to be his second feature was Under the Silver Lake, which came out in 2018, but I have not seen. I have not seen it either. In fact, I have not seen any of his other movies I remember when Under the Silver Lake came out and I was like, oh, I really want to see this only because of that director's name attached to it. But the critical acclaim that were showered upon It Follows was not reciprocated right with this particular movie. It just didn't happen. I think people found it to be confusing and just not, not, not really good. Maybe a little too dry, I think, is what I heard. Yeah, and that I think that he was going for something and couldn't quite achieve it, you know, but I can't say 100% because I haven't seen the movie. It's remained on my watch list, low these many years, but I just haven't taken the time to actually watch it. So he conceived of It Follows based on recurring dreams he had in his uh, childhood about being followed. He was quoted to say, I didn't use those images for the film, but the basic idea and the feeling I used. From what I understand, it's an anxiety dream. Whatever I was going through at the time, my parents divorced when I was around that age, so I imagine it was something to do with that. And I think that's a good segue for us to start talking about the movie itself, right? Because there is definitely a vibe here. There's definitely a vibe. And it's, yeah, it's one of those movies that has that atmosphere that you could just like cut with a knife. You know, I could count those like on my fingers, I guess, maybe on just one hand, where I would say that there is just that thick. Right. True. And I also feel like this is a man who has seen some horror movies for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. And he's not afraid to pay some homage to it. um, And still at the end of the day, make his own movie. Right. Which I think is very, very important. Yeah. I mean, there's like a, there's also like a really unique look to this. It's like he really wanted a wink and a nod and a smile to all the horror movies that have come before it especially the classics in the, you know, the seventies and the eighties. And so there's like a real, like feeling of a used universe here. Yeah. Like nothing's changed from the eighties slashers, but all of our modern characters are existing in it. Like, it's really strange. There's like a lot of dilapidation and there's like a weird mix of like high tech, that clamshell uh, tablet that she has or phone that she's reading her books on. Yeah. You know, and then there's all these retro cars, like um, there's retro movies and like sounds in the background, like radio from back in the day. Um, there's a lot of use of like browns and yellows and like wood paneling in the houses. Like it reminds me of Skinamarink and the way it tries to invoke a memory and, and feelings of an earlier time in that time, like 70s and 80s, you know? It's got a great tone. It's a feeling as much as it is a movie. Yeah, that's completely accurate. From the time this movie starts to the time that it finishes, I feel like it has a very set tone just based upon its setting and based upon its aesthetic. To me, the movie from an art direction standpoint meaning like the houses, the cars, everything in the periphery, right? Feels very, very 80s to me. Just all of it is like suburban 80s. It was like it was like stuck in time. It's almost like Detroit was the perfect place to set this and to film it. <laughs> it is because, I mean, if you look at Detroit, like in its heyday compared to now, you know, like there's a huge difference in that. Mm-hmm. And I think Detroit is just one of those areas where there's a very definite sense of separation between like suburbia and the city itself. And the more you drive into the city, which is apparent in this movie, the things start to seem a little bit more run down, abandoned, dilapidated. And like the characters themselves have a sense and they actually talk about like not being able to go any further than certain parts of the city. Right. Yeah, Eight mile or whatever. Right. You're like, we're not allowed to go past this. And so, and they eventually do in, in the movie do that, you know, because 
a huge chunk of this movie is about like growing up and becoming an adult. One of the things that they do to even just sort of like symbolize that is going past the barriers that their parents have set for them. Right. And they do that only with setting in this movie. And it's fucking amazing. The thing that kind of like changes the eighties vibe to this is like the, the costume design. I feel like a lot of the clothing in this looks very nineties to me. And I'm like, it's so, it was so striking on this particular rewatch. I was like, everything about their setting is very eighties. Everything about their clothing is very nineties and everything about the, the children or young adults themselves is very kind of like modern day or futurist. And it's a really, really good fucking mix to make you remember like horror movies can be fucking timeless, even though the themes that horror movies talk about are constant. And this movie is no exception. Like it it has all the themes that an eighties or nineties horror movie would have in it. Yeah. And so like he cited that uh, Romero and and John Carpenter, were huge influences on the film's composition and visual aesthetic. And that's 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's absolutely, this is, this is a John Carpenter movie all over. (laughs) Like it just really is from like the score and just the way that it's paced, the way that tension builds on it, right. The way that the story is kind of explained very, very slowly or sometimes not at all has a very like Carpenter esque aspect to it. And like the characters themselves kind of remind me of a George Romero movie because the characters are kind of involved in each other as a group which happens a lot in romero movies and they're having to like solve a problem and face a common entity you know so i mean all these things are present and like he just takes takes all this homage and creates his own world and creates his own movie and i think like it could stand the test of time as much as other directors did yeah the film's monster and uh, shot composition, overall aesthetic, were also influenced by the work of contemporary photographer Gregory Crudson. Have you seen this? I have. Well, I've, I've, I've heard this, but I have no idea who that is. So, yeah, director of photography Mike Galaka said, we're both big fans of still photographer Gregory Crudson, and David had him in his lookbook from day one. Crudson's photographs have the same kind of surreal suburban imagery that we wanted for It Follows. And you look at this stuff, it almost looks like post-apocalyptic. Like, it's it's like that skinamarink look and, like, broad daylight horror with the people like sitting in there almost like their corpses in their own environment, you know, like in there in some sort of like permanently encased eighties tomb or something, you know, like mm-hmm. it's kind of creepy looking and, but there's still like these lights, uh, warm colors and things like that. It's like hard to, to talk about. Um, I'd really just need to show you that work, but it's, it's also weird to, to think of it as photo- photography because it looks like digital art or something like that from the way he's got the color. So specific, he really sets the scene and uh, in the, you know, not just like nature photography or like on the fly doing a photo shoot. He's literally painting a canvas with with real world objects in and lighting to get a certain look like he's painting with photography. So he's creating like a photographic still life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like at the very least a slice of time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I can definitely see like when I saw some of the, the example pictures when I looked it up, um, it does look like a lot of the stuff from this movie, including like the outdoors stuff. You can watch this movie and know that everything that he did from like a filmmaking standpoint or a cinema cinematography standpoint is very, very intentional. Right. And they clearly went for a sort of look and a feel for this. Well, they had to be super, super uh, intentional with it because of the way the monster works Mm -hmm. and because of the way the audience has to be looking for the monster. And this was something that is so fun on a first watch. 
And I was like, was kicking myself after leaving the theater for the first time, because I was like, I'm never going to have that experience of watching this movie for the first time ever again. But that's not completely untrue. I have fun. Like I, I pick this movie up every couple of years and I'm, I'm looking in the background. I'm like, I have that like feeling of tension, you know, because even before you know the details about whatever it is, the film starts training you to look in the background, like their dinner date and everything else. There's people like walking towards the thing in the background. It alludes that he's looking for someone that's following him. And you always, obviously, you know. Uh, that the title is what it is and you've seen a trailer or something, you know, and so you're looking for something constantly and it lets you do that with windows and all kinds of stuff. It lets you do that from the very first moments of this movie when that girl runs out of the house, right? Looking not quite disheveled, right? She's looking like she was kind of like caught off guard, Yeah, you know, like she's wearing an outfit that one would assume should not have heels with it. Yeah. And she's like, she has to grab whatever she can to get the hell out of there. And she's obviously being pursued by something, right? She looks like someone who possibly could have experienced some sort of sexual assault, like just moments ago. Yeah. You know, and that's why people around her are like, are you, are you sure you're okay? And she's yeah. like, yeah, because she has no way to explain this. You know what I mean? Nope. I mean, and we don't know anything about this girl. We don't know if she was given all the, like the, the very basics of the rules that Jay was given later on in the movie. Right. But from that first moment where she's running around a suburban neighborhood, trying to escape something that we don't even know what it is yet. You know, like the movie starts to train you to know that like you're being followed completely. So it has you looking in the background constantly. There's a scene later on when they, this is after she's already been kind of abducted and they're spending the night and they're talking, right? She's scared. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know exactly what's going on. She was like in and out of consciousness while the guy was explaining the plot to her, you know, with, oh, I just gave you this STD, you know, sexually transmitted demon. So Jay and Paul, I guess her childhood friend who has always had a crush on her are just casually sitting down on the couch reminiscing about their innocent youth. And yet every time I see this movie, it's one of the most tense dialogue scenes ever because you just know that this thing's coming relentlessly and you know it should be there. There by now there's no window either in that scene nope. it's just a straight on shot of them like really talking slowly and calmly no one's scared in the in the scene but you know it's coming and it's like that's something that's so unique to this movie you're absolutely right because one of the things that hugh you know quote unquote says to her is that never be in a room without more than one exit yeah and so like you you know this thing is coming we've already seen it and we know that eventually it's going to get to her. They seem to have forgotten in that moment, right? But like this time around, I was just like counting exits. Yeah. I was like, how can she get out of that room? You know, and just like every horror movie trope, when it finally shows up in that moment, she goes up the fucking stairs. Well, yeah. And then, uh, you know, it's like you're it's it's interesting. It's so interestingly written because it just, it's written in such a way that you can pick out the most important things but your brain is like looking behind them is trying to work do the math of the scene mm-hmm. you know and trying and uh, they wrote it so that it's missable in a way that's right right and so that, that it's constructed so that you can like look at the whole thing and not have to zoom on any part of it so like and finally like with those static cameras you're like let me see around let me look around you know and finally that rotating camera with this this masterful pans that happen throughout this movie i think at least one per act per major act that rotating camera really makes me feel vulnerable when it's turned away from something I know is already headed my way. So it shows you something's headed towards the window. You can spot it, right? Yeah, yeah. They have this thing always dressed in some sort of white. So it kind of stands out 
And then like the camera turns away from it because it continues to pan. And you're like, fuck, <laughs> you know? And so it just gives you that anxiety because you know that it's headed your way behind you. It's like, even though you're not in the movie, you know, and that's, that's especially prevalent when they're in the high school asking about the, the boy that she had had sex with. That's right. I, I feel like there's multiple pans in this movie that really, really do that well. Also, more callbacks to other horror movies, like when she's sitting at school, like listening to that lecture, right, that literature lecture, it really brings back a lot of like Craven and things like that, where you're just sitting there, like waiting for something to happen and listening to someone drone on and on and on. And there are multiple times in this movie where people seem to be reading quotes from things. And I'm like, this really has nothing to do with anything in the movie that they're saying, you know, but you're sort of entranced by it. And I'm like... I'm not, I shouldn't be paying attention to what's being said right now. You be paying attention visually what's around. But that's the first time this, this movie is so interestingly constructed, right? Because that was the first time I was listening for a quote to try and deconstruct it for what it meant in the scene. And I'm not sure that one did as much, but later on, it already trained you to listen for it, mm-hmm. you know? And so when the, uh, like when Yara is reading some quotes from her book, you know, it's like, oh, uh, that might have something to do with, you know, everything, you know? It might, you know, but th- that's really not what's important, though. I mean, I, but it's there. Um, I don't know. I really, I really, really like the monster in this movie. I, I think that it's the right kind of like inescapable and and blending. You know, like it's really like if you're not looking for it, it's just really neat that we can blend into a crowd and still be coming after you. Yeah, like when it's it's most obvious, like a half naked urinating woman in a kitchen. You know, like that's truly frightening. But if it's just someone just like there, someone in a yellow dress, you know, that someone can't see, like that is just truly terrifying. Yeah, to me. Now that we know what it can do and what it does, we're sort of like given the aftermath of what can happen to a person when it finally catches you, when it follows enough to like get its hands on you. They right? were fully clothed, but there was definitely some like weird ooze going on. Yeah. Skin to skin contact with that thing. And you just don't want to know the details because it was just gross enough and also incestuous yeah. in the form that it took in that scene. And that scene with her, you know, sort of like pseudo love interest. Right. But even just the girl on the beach from the beginning, you know, I mean like her body is ripped apart. Legs are like, hanging from kneecaps and things like that you know and so i mean that's some real rough fucking sex that thing is having with things you know you can tell it's very very strong but we know that from later on yeah that's true so we can't talk about like the vibe of this movie without talking about the music and i know we already have a little bit but this music is like really is the other half of this movie it's almost like john williams to jaws or indiana jones or something this music really really makes this movie and just um you know, or it really partners with it to create something more than the sum of its parts to mm-hmm. me. And of course this is, um, you know, David Robert Mitchell really liked the, the score for the game Fez. And this is disaster piece normally does like video game scores. Okay. And in fact, after this, he famously did a Hyperlight drifter, which was one of the best soundtracks, uh, period, not just games, right. Uh, of that year. Other movies that he'd done was, of course, Under the Silver Lake. Uh, eventually did Marcel, the, the shell with shoes on. Oh my God. Which I've never seen, but it was up for a bunch of awards, including Academy Awards, I think. Yep. And then um, Bodies, 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 which I I remember knowing that it was a disaster piece, but not super impressed or it didn't stand out to me. I think that this score stands out because they, again, were going for a very specific vibe or feel. I feel like Bodies, Bodies, Bodies just wanted a cool vibe versus this was more like a match made in heaven. Yes. I mean, because visually they were going for something that looked very, very 80s. And this movie is very like the score is very synth heavy and can get really dramatic. And some people just do not like that. Well, I mean, that's very Carpenter. 
I mean, Carpenter scores are very synth-heavy and can get very, very dramatic. And if you're going for this kind of like really 80s Carpenter-esque vibe visually, like it would make sense to have your score sort of match that. The thing is that the score like stands out from like Carpenter. It's not a copy, right? It really is much more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's just trying to capture a vibe with this score. There are not many film scores that I can listen to, like from start to finish, right? Like there are certain tracks that I like, but the score for it follows. I can literally just listen to the background, listen to while I'm driving. There's a lot of lo-fi in there. Yeah. Yeah, And then there's some like bangers. Yeah. Old Maid, I think. And like the title from Disaster Piece is really good. Um, I feel like this probably made an appearance on our top 10 like horror scores episode. It had to have. And like, I just, I really, really dig this score. And I think it adds so much to the movie for all the reasons that we've already talked about, like visually and just like vibe wise. Well, and all it does is stands to give us access to the themes of the movie. Oh my goodness. Let me open up this discussion seltzer while we talk about the themes. So the critical analysis of It Follows sparked a lot of interpretations from film critics in regards to the source of It, or whatever It is, and the film's symbolism. Critics interpreted the film as a parable about HIV-AIDS, other sexually transmitted infections, and the social perceptions thereof, the sexual revolution, the primeval anxieties about intimacy, and post-Great Recession economic anxiety. What do you think about that? (laughs) I think it's all those things. I think it's a no. I, you know, I think that's on the surface. I think that's for people that are just like trying to enjoy a movie at a a passing glance. Right. I, I I think that it's very, very obvious that that's what this movie is about, but like, yeah, I I just feel like the spreading of STDs as a theme is just like the tip of the iceberg and almost a philosophical red herring to interest fans of eighties horror movies, especially slashers that follow the rules, the rules. And that's exactly what I was going to say. I was just like, in order to create a really good, like eighties esque kind of horror movie, you have to like follow some sort of rules and some sort of like set parameters. And that's what this movie does. Like, just basically, you know what I mean? Like, people have done things that in the 80s would have been considered wrong in a horror movie by having sex. Rules are set up from one person to another, and they have to be followed. Otherwise, you're going to die. And that's that's an 80s horror movie. Literally, the thing in this movie that kills you is having sex, right? And so I think that's like a, a nod to the trope. But the movie itself does not seem to have any sort of moral judgment on sex itself which is a really interesting thing to achieve that's right because in an 80s horror movie the way to stay alive is to not have sex which you just said right and to stay alive and it follows you need to repeatedly have sex <laughs> kind of yeah yeah it's almost like doubling down on the trope but then subverting it at the same time exactly right and so david uh, robert mitchell stated this made me start thinking you know obviously i've seen this movie quite a bit and i already kind of thought about these things as well but for the for those that have not had the chance or didn't like it their first time around, uh, thought it was you know overbearing or something, or it was just like they felt judged or something by by this, I would say let's take a moment to listen to what the director had to say, I guess, about that theme. And he said, "quote I'm not personally that interested in where it comes from. To me, it's dream logic in the sense that they're in a nightmare, and when you're in a nightmare, there's no solving the nightmare, even if you try to solve it." Mitchell also said that while Jay opens herself up to danger through sex, the one way in which she can free herself from that danger, we're all here for a limited amount of time and we can't escape our mortality, but love and sex are two ways in which we can at least temporarily push death away. And that's true of anybody who's even not in danger. And that sounds kind of like a hint about what this movie is actually about to me, right? 
Okay. So like you can take this as a straightforward horror movie. It totally exists that way. And I think intentionally, right? It's that bait of well, this is the tropey eighties slasher nod, you know, like with the the whole thing about sex, right? But my suggestion would be don't float on the surface of this movie. There's so much more to it if you just start to look. And in this case, it's fairly rewarding if you do. So like start thinking of the title as a double entendre. It follows. What follows? Death follows. In every scenario of life, death follows, right? The title isn't telling you a premise of it following so much as it's telling you what always happens. Death follows. Does that make any sense? I mean, yeah, it does. So there's a cynical and kind of depressing view of life in this movie. And we're all just sitting around and waiting to die. There's a calm and almost a boring aspect uh, to this movie between all of those action beats. All those friends are kind of just waiting around, relying on their screens or like their books, entertainment in the background, or, you know, some sort of escapism to just move time forward. You don't see them just sitting around talking and laughing at all. You just kind of see them just like sitting around, even when they're at the lake or in a living room mm-hmm. or anywhere else, they're just kind of like staring at the ground and picking, you know, grass out of it, you know, and stuff like that. That's all, that's all they're doing in this movie. I yeah. think like the first time that we see Jay, she's getting into like the world's largest above ground swimming pool and <laughs> like just floating in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like literally doing nothing while nothing happens in the neighborhood around her. You know what I mean? Yep. Like children are kind of looking at her and she's like, I see you, you know, people are going about their lives and everything is very, very mundane. She goes on a date and they're just standing in a line that does not move <laughs> ever. You know, it's like, how long does it take to buy a ticket to a movie? But they're standing there long enough to play a whole game and have a whole conversation about childhood and experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then they walk into a theater that's incredibly timeless where someone's playing an organ. Like nothing, nothing is happening. Time doesn't seem to be moving at all. In this movie, what does the guy call out? And they're like, who are you? Who would you rather be replaced with? Right. Who would you rather trade lives with? The child. Right. He chooses the child. The child has excitement and anticipation and his whole life ahead of him. That's right. Just like he says, and is not worried about death at all. Right. And so it's like, maybe that's part of the point of this movie. Everything was written intentionally in this movie. It's not just as an aside. No, I completely agree with you. And I think that, I mean, if you look at the surface of the conversation, yeah, eventually we know that he's being followed by something that's going to kill him. You know what I mean? He's taking whatever pleasure he can in these mundane moments in life, you know, but still in the back of his head, he's like, I'm going to die eventually because he knows he's trying to pass this on. Right. But yet, even after they leave the theater and they go have dinner, like they're laughing and having a good time. You know what I mean? He's using these small moments as escapism, but in the back of his mind, he's thinking about death and That's the thing is that like, at what age do you really start to like view your own mortality, even if you're not constantly being chased by something? Well, let's say it's, that's the gateway from, you know, childhood to adulthood. Childhood to adulthood. And that's exactly what this movie is about. Sometime after you have sex for the first time, maybe, you know, perhaps, I mean, it's all these rites of passage Mm -hmm. that sort of move you, usher you into adulthood. And like, we're looking at like urban decay from yeah. a uh, a suburban standpoint. You know what I mean? And, and a sociological all, standpoint. And exactly. You know what I mean? Like every single character in this movie is white. Yeah. Right. And in, in a city that is predominantly African-American, you know what I mean? I mean, it's just like, there's just so much going on about like the deconstruction of things around you and trying to maintain as much as possible because no one wants that inevitable slow march toward death. It's almost post-apocalyptic in a way. It, yeah. it, it really, really is. So as humans, it's our nature to have that drive to procreate and spread our genes before our inevitable demise. The parents in this movie 
are depicted almost like the walking dead long ago having been through their own sexual rite of passage into adulthood they now decay into nothingness in their suburban tombs this is that (laughs) (laughs) it's the most profound way to put it but yes the camera will pan past like bedrooms as they're walking down the hallway and you'll see like there's a an adult laying on the bed out of frame just you can see their feet and they're they're like just and then you can see a bunch of wine glasses and like a bottle, you know, mm-hmm. and you'll see some kind of turned away talking about some nonsense, you know, and you'll see kind of partially revealed photographs of them, you know. But for the most part, they get kind of Charlie Brown, you know, they get kind of like they have faded into the background and they become almost part of the decay. I think the moments that we see the parents the most in this movie are incredibly horrific, right? I mean, it takes the shape of some of these parents only to try to kill their children and grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. And children, though, as well. That's right. So, I mean, like, uh, we have Jay's father, right? It shows up as Jay's father, which, you know, he's not present in the movie. One can only assume that he is deceased, you know? And um, he's actively trying to kill his child. And if you think about it, I mean, like, if you're trying to, like, erase your past mistakes or, like, go back and try over, you know, like, what they're doing in that game or what he's trying to do, like, picking the child, they succeeded in showing that in this movie. Yeah. I like that you mentioned the water (laughs) because there's a lot of symbolism in this movie focusing on it. So water in this movie seems to be symbolism for childhood, the womb innocence jay gets further and further and further from it the longer she exists and moves through this movie finally ending up in the community pool ultimately corrupting the element for her forever in an attempt to hold on to her own innocence right staving off the inevitable we even see her above ground pool completely drained and kind of broken at the end of the movie she's lost her innocence forever the very beginning she's immersed in it she tries to get back in it by the very end and then it's gone right (laughs) Well, there is that one particular scene where she sort of takes off her clothes and walks into the lake or whatever, and the like the, the it doesn't show her going by. Oh, it doesn't show her getting in the water. No, she she walks towards it, and it's a hard cut back. Oh, so she had decided not to. She had already moved past that moment in her life. Good lord. Yeah, I don't think I remembered that. Yeah, she never like because I always wondered about that scene. Like, what just happens with the three guys? Obviously, she didn't have sex with them. No, obviously, they didn't take advantage of her. No. Uh, she steps into the lake and it cuts, but we don't see her step any further than stepping into it. The whole time I was thinking about, should she be getting into the water with that cast on her arm? I'm like, my God. (laughs) Well, she does later on in that big pool. (laughs) That's true. And then the whole time I'm like, the cast, you're going to ruin your cast. Your arm has to heal. And then I was like, use the cast as a shield. (laughs) (laughs) Dink, dink, dink. (laughs) So by the end of the movie, Jay and Paul coupling up together is an acceptance of the reality of adulthood that you can simply choose someone to live out the rest of your days of suburban confinement with sharing your inherited dread, attempting to make the best of it as you keep one step ahead of your crippling existential reality, knowing it will one day catch up to you and be the end of you both. (laughs) My God, I have never felt more of my 45 years than I do right now at this very moment. And so the end, right? Of course, It's not them following. It's wearing red. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it might be. And that's forcing you to ask. And of course, the real answer to this is that no, they did not kill that fucking demon. It's out there and it will go back down the line if it needs to. It's inevitable. It is inevitable. Just like death. Yep. I mean, it doesn't matter what's following you or how you got it. Like we're all going to get there eventually. Yeah. You know, and 
I, I, that, that's the whole thing about this movie is that it follows and it follows all of us, like whether or not we have gotten it from sex or just existing in general, like death will reach you eventually. And so maybe the, 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 so what isn't being so cynical about death and life and suburban decay and everything else, but to maybe try and maintain or remember what it was like to be a child and more carefree and not obsessed with our own lifespans or death or, you know. I mean, like it's it's perfectly fine to move past childhood and not want to go back. You know, I mean, the, the older I get, the less I feel like I would like to go back and do things over again. I rarely ever think about my teenage years anymore. No, I mean philosophically, like a child, not oh, to okay. relive it. No, you know? good. But I think philosophically, like a child. Yeah, I mean, like the like moments... a child, don't be obsessed with your own death. You have right. your whole life ahead of you, right? That's yes, the whole perfect. thing. Innocence. You know that you do kind of uh, long for that innocence, that ability to see the world through those rose-colored glasses. You know. Because I think some of the best times that these people have in this movie, like when Hugh and Jay are having dinner and they're both sort of laughing and actually being on a date. When Paul and Jay are sitting there reminiscing about like being each other's first kiss. You know what I mean? It's those those kinds of moments. Like focus on that shit and less like what's going to happen to me in the future or whatever. And you it's know? also some of the most destructive, at least to people's psyche, it's the most destructive thing when they try and escape death. Right. Their friends around them get hurt. Mm -hmm. Uh, They rush to go and have sex with all these other people, you know, and end up hurting them, you know, because they're just trying to survive themselves and live another day, you know. And so it's just like, you know, maybe that's the takeaway. How incredibly self-serving, you know, but like. Choose, choose your tribe, choose your people. Like, like at the end of this movie, they're walking down the street holding hands. Right. I feel like the inevitableness of that couple happening. Right. Mm -hmm is is there it's there the entire movie you know like from the glances that he gives her it's it's obvious how he feels about her and her reluctance to sort of like pass this thing on to him she may have some feelings about him you know i, I don't know that they're like shared as strongly on her end she's comfortable but you can tell that she's settling yeah he's not exciting at all for her nope but that's the part of the movie as well growing up is settling because, I mean, there are three men in this movie that she, like, interacts with, and he's the very last choice for her. Look, there are some parts of this movie that are that I love it for that are inescapably cynical about yeah. life. And that's just the way it is. And I think that's a statement, too. So I mean, that's true. And you know what? I, as much as we talk about, like, wet Grinch salads. It says, this is life. Mm-hmm. And you can, this like, unapologetically, this is what life is. Or you can look at the silver lining, which is to choose not to think of it that way and try and be more like a child, you know? Yeah. Ugh, I really love this movie. So where does the fear, like, how does the fear work? You know, like most horror movies deal with the horror of the unknown, you know, what's hidden in the shadows. This movie is almost the opposite of that in some regards. It's like the, you know, not knowing itself. If something will come after you again, will hunt you, is dead or defeated or busy with something else, or just won't cross your path again like a wild animal. There is hope in that ignorance that offers some release and relief with movie monsters like Michael Myers. But knowing that this thing is constantly coming after you, no matter what, with 100% dedicated purpose, is terrifying in a way that's completely draining, even the most quiet moments of this movie, especially in those quiet moments. The quiet moments are the worst. You know what I mean? Uh, those moments where like the, the just things are happening. There's you're sitting in a lecture and a camera is panning or like looking squarely out a window. And there's so many people in the background, but you're like, okay, what's coming? What's what's relentlessly walking toward the camera at that particular moment? If you any know? of us look philosophically in the distance too far, we will see our own death. <sighs> Sometimes I hate it when you speak. <laughs> 
<laughs> so this movie is accessible, but it's still oblique, right? Because the mythology isn't super accessible. But I mean, that's besides the point. The mythology was just like a catalyst for this or like a way to tell the story. Right. Right. He's not interested in what this thing actually is. No one is. No. Well, there's a lot of people that are. And like the producers will famously like do sequels of a movie, you know, that just double down on the monster and like, what's the mythology? And well, let's explain it all. And let's go back in time. No, this movie is not interested in, the, in its monster at all. No. It's literally just trying to tell this story uh, through metaphor, right? And analogy and stuff. Well, I think that it's most interested in its characters, you know what I mean? And not the monster. Yeah. And not even about its character's survival. So much it is about just what the characters are doing. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like this movie is super, super accessible, which is why I'm so shocked. On one level it is. I think on this this lower level, when you think about, oh, it's about sex and it's an 80s nod and everything else is just a twist versus below that, which you can totally enjoy this film on, right? On that level. Yeah. But below the surface is all the thing about life and death and that cycle. And it's all there if people just choose to kind of dig into it a little bit. Well, that's the thing is that I I don't feel like most – I'm not going to say most. I feel like a lot of horror fans probably don't go beneath the surface whenever they think about horror movies. People go and they just want to be scared. They want a popcorn horror movie. Mm. I feel like this movie works on that particular level. It does. It works on multiple levels, which I love. Yeah, which I'm so shocked at its fucking audience score. Like 66%. Is shocking to me. This is like two movies in one. And it's not one of those where it's like, oh, I didn't understand the full plot or context because it wasn't revealed to me. It's not one of those. Like, Shutter no. Island. This is operating at multiple levels at the same time. And you can enjoy it in those different ways. That's right. I mean, you could watch this movie just because I want to get scared and I want to watch something that's horrific. And you could also watch it as I want horror that I can think about later on. And I, depending on the day, I might take that view of this particular movie, you know? So, yeah, I think it's accessible, but like still oblique, but still we're kind of dangled these quotes within the movie itself, which mm-hmm. I really love. Right. When Yara is in the hospital because she was accidentally shot at the pool, you know, she reads from that book that she mentioned earlier, quote, think when there is torture, there is pain and wounds, physical agony. And all of this distracts the mind from mental suffering so that one is tormented only by the wounds themselves until the moment of death. But the most terrible agony may not be in the wounds themselves. But in knowing for certain that within an hour, within 10 minutes, then within half a minute, now at this very instant, your soul will leave your body and you will no longer be a person. And that is certain. The worst thing is that it is certain. The inevitability of death, right? And this, of course, is from her light reading, The Idiot by Dostoevsky. (laughs) (laughs) Her very light reading from that clamshell. Yeah. Um, And the fact that she was just like, I'm just going to say this out loud to all my friends. You know, you're all here with me in the hospital. Listen to this profound words of wisdom. But yeah, I mean, like out of all the quotes that are read in this particular movie, I think that pretty much sums it up. Oh, it really does. But I mean, like in short, most people think this movie is about the dangers of sex. No, that's just the clever nod and invitation for horror fans. What this movie is actually about is existential dread and the inevitability of death. Happy Valentine's Month. That's right. (laughs) Oh, we have chosen two very different movies with kind of similar (laughs) moments to talk about this month. And I love it. Uh, Do you have any fun facts for me? I kind of do. Okay. 
The film shares a few similarities with another supernatural horror film hit, Stephen King's It. Yes. Both movies deal with a shape-shifting demonic entity that relentlessly terrorizes a group of youths. The uncomfortable sexual undertones and implications in the narratives, the childlike qualities reflected from the main characters, the sense of dread and uncertainty in the atmosphere due to the dark force, and the groups fighting back against the supernatural threat together. And of course, both films have the word It in their titles. All those things are very, very true. Yeah, I feel like there's like a little bit of a pre-Stranger Things kind of vibe going on with It Follows mm-hmm. that I almost wonder if Stranger Things kind of took from a little bit, especially with their like techno intro, you know? You can follow a lot of these things, you know what I mean? So <laughs> yeah. like It Follows happens, Stranger Things happens, and then Stephen King's It, like that that sort of like yeah. first theatrical version of it happens. Life imitates art, imitates life, imitates art. Imitates yeah, it's like bam, bam, bam. Cycle. All these things happen <laughs> and they, they need each other to follow on. Mm-hmm. It follows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> In this very instant, your soul leaves its body. Yes. So not only do the set props prevent the viewer from placing the year... The clothing prevents the viewer from placing the time of year. Throughout the film's short duration, clothing ranges from coats, jackets, t-shirts, and swimsuits during the day to Uh barely anything at night. All outdoors with no signs of discomfort. She is getting into that, the world's largest above-ground swimming pool, where the leaves on the trees look like it's like full-on fall. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, but what? She's not shivering. She's in the cold. She can't see her breath. She falls asleep on the top of a car later at night. Meanwhile, in the day, they're all wearing like coats and stuff, you know, like, so yeah. it's, it's really weird. The it's whole like thing. Texas. I mean, he was right when he called it, they're living in a nightmare. You're living in a dream. All of it is very, very, Purgatory very dreamlike. Yeah. 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 Like it's just, it's there, but it's not there. It's nothing, but it's something. I mean, like it's, it's very dream Yeah. So Jay is short for Jamie, a tribute to Scream Queen, Jamie Lee Curtis. And in the film, Jay has a sister named Kelly. Jamie Lee Curtis also has a sister named Kelly Curtis. Oh, that's a fun fact. Did they say Jamie in the movie though? Yeah. Her name's Jamie. I just heard Jay. Okay. I love that though. Yeah. Following the film's success, Radius TWC co-president Tom Quinn announced that the studio was looking into a possible sequel. Quinn has expressed the idea of flipping the concept of the first film around with Jay or another protagonist going down the chain to find the origin of it. If this fucking happens, I swear to God. And of course that comes from a fucking producer. I will riot. They just don't understand. All they know is like, it's about this and it made this much money. I was thinking while watching this movie that I don't want to see a sequel to it No, for this particular reason. I was like, they will take a movie that is really good and can be timeless, like literally a masterpiece of horror and ruin it by being super tropey and just trying to cash in on stuff. And I really hope that doesn't happen. So on October 30th, 2023, less than a year ago, it was announced that a sequel entitled They Follow was in pre-production with writer-director David Robert Mitchell and star Micah Monroe returning neon Quinn's second film studio, which produce produce and distribute the film domestically filming would begin this year in 2024. So I'm hoping that with him in charge, like we read everything that was so cynical and super uh, intentional and explicit in this film, you know, he's going to bring that into a sequel and it's not going to be into the mythology. If, if there is any more mythology reveal, it's going to be incidental. Right. This is going to be about the next step. Like, what is the next turtle in, like, in adulthood or something? You know what yep. I mean? I love it. I, I would love that. Like, if they can do it just right, a sequel would be really, really good. But please, for the love of God, everybody, just make another one and be done with it. Yeah. You know, like, I. 
or maybe it's just going to rehash, you know, it's like the neighborhood kids wonder what's going on. And, you know, she asks and she's like, this is what happens when you bam, bam and the ham, ham. <laughs> <sighs> oh my God. Well, we have some questions to ask about it follows like we do about every movie that we cover on the film flamers. And we're going to start with, is it follows a horror movie? Yes, very much so. Chris, when you're looking behind you and something is following you, what do you see? Uh, cats. <laughs> I, I see know. two ferocious Devon Rex cats. <laughs> Just straight coming after you. Yeah. Were you scared watching It Follows? Yes. I was scared in the theater. Um, you know, I, I like the jump scare things, whatever. I don't count that, right? It, this didn't really have any jump scares. As far as I know, there's no real Dolby shocks, really. There's like some reveals, quick reveals, but they're not really like, they're not shooting sound at you either. You know, I, uh, that doorway scene while she opens and the tall guy kind of comes out of the shadows. Yeah, that's, that's more scary. like, that was scary by itself, visually, without any soundtrack help. You know, it's like the the there's almost... Nothing like this movie as far as like being scared and so tense during a normal, calm, even happy dialogue scene or just like watching everything in the background. There's almost like no experience like watching this for the first time or even really any other time. Yeah, I'm still watching the background constantly to see if I missed something, you know? And I think that's what this movie is really good at. I think that's where it succeeds is that there's so much going on in the background that you can possibly pick out. You kind of want to go back and watch it again to the see paranoia is transportive. Like, yes. Insane. And I, I feel like just there are some moments like just basic fucking camera shots that both make me feel like this movie is a fucking masterpiece and just terrifying. One in particular. Oh, that's a masterpiece. I think it's more of a... Disaster piece. A disaster piece. <laughs> There's a moment where they find that dilapidated house that Hugh was, you know, quote unquote living in. And there's this like just a single shot. The camera's not even really moving. And you see this group of people standing sort of equidistant from each other going into the house and Jay standing alone and just turning around and looking behind the camera because she's looking for it follows, you know. And I was just like, this shot gives me such a fucking boner and scares me at the same time because I want them to go into the house, but I don't, you know, every part of this movie just makes me terrified and scared. And it's just the most mundane kind of scare. Yeah, and that whole section of the movie, Detroit's a very real character in this movie too. It really is. You know, from those, those rows of houses in eight mile all the way to the swim place that looks like a Gothic, you know, tomb or something. It does. It's like the world's largest and most d- d- abandoned YMCA or something, you know, <laughs> where the pool magically happens to be like filled with water still, yeah. you know, but they have to cut through chain leaf to get into it. You I know, guess. I, don't. I mean, like, I don't know. I just this movie is really, really scary. And the thing is, that the monster itself is unnerving, but it never looks any different than just like a person, yeah. just a scary person, mm-hmm. you know, or your dad or a normal looking person. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, out of five stars, what would you rate It Follows? I rated it five stars. Ooh. That was hard for me to do, right? Because there's some there's some pacing issues that I have with this movie a little bit, but I just don't – I can't quite put my finger on it. There's some scenes that kind of end abruptly or like go on a little bit long, but I think that's also intentional, you know, but it also kind of took me out of the movie a little bit as I was trying to like view it through the lens of, of critique, 
you know? And so um, I still had to give it five stars because I can watch it on these so many levels and enjoy the shit out of it every single fucking time. And it's endlessly recommendable. I would agree with uh, almost all that. I gave this movie four and a half stars. The one thing that keeps me from giving it a perfect score is that by the end of this movie, I don't like some of the directions that they take, right? Like I really dislike the whole plan of electrocuting the monster or whatever in the pool. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like the details surrounding that were kind of weak and that the kids maybe should have known, but the, the whole point was that the kids would fail. Yeah. Right. Cause they're part of a nightmare and there's, they're trying to solve a problem. They can't, you know, as an adult, we know that there's breakers and it's not going to do anything, you know? Um, but also we also know constructively, like thematically the math problem ends in water, right. Or a corruption of water. And so it's like he had to like write things around that thematically. So it's really kind of interesting to think about from that standpoint. But I agree that on principle, like you're correct, it was stupid. <laughs> well, I just feel like, oh, we have to start getting toward the end of a movie. You know what I mean? And so it's just like, no, I just don't like the way that it went. I don't like that direction. It, it really bothered me the first time I watch it. It bothers me when I watch it this time. Do you not enjoy the scene or? No, I mean, there, there are parts in the scene that I really, really like. I feel like the moments in the pool scene that really hit home are all about the monster itself, right? Because it's going back and forth between it being invisible and being seen by Jay. And her sister shouts out, what does it look like? And she says, I don't want to tell you. Yeah. And at that point, we haven't seen it. And when we do see it, we're like, but why though? It's not until later on when we see a picture of her dad in the house where yep. we know what it was. You know, I think that works on that particular level. Yep. I just, I really... Their dad in his underwear. And you can only elude that something horrible happened there, especially at the beginning of the film when the neighbor's like, that family is such a mess. Yep. Right? And so there's so much storytelling with throwaway lines and visual storytelling in this movie. I, I just feel so like that levels. particular moment was kind of throwaway for the movie itself and maybe i'm just missing the point of it you know what i mean but like it just felt like sort of haphazardly thrown in as an ending to get to you know him taking it from jay we presume gave it to a sex worker or whatever them starting to try to like live happily ever after and in their their own settling you know i think that's a much better ending i don't think we needed that pool scene i would rather them try to like deal with the inevitability of what's going on and, and not try to kill it and just try to pass it on to somebody Yeah, else. I think people just, I think he thought people needed, for a horror film, they needed some sort of action set piece as a crescendo to the film. And I mean, for like the the the, the layperson audience, yeah, they probably do, yeah. you know what I mean? But, but for me, for me, you know, mm -hmm. I just, no. Yeah. And I, but I would agree, this movie is one of the things that I would always recommend to people to watch you know, and when I come across people who say they like horror movies, and have you seen it follows and they say no, I'm like, well, do yourself a service and go watch it because it really, really is a good movie. Yeah. And like we mentioned earlier, I feel like the lineage of not just prestige horror that came after this, but horror itself, right? Over the last 10 years, it was a huge debt of gratitude to this particular movie. I feel like this ushered in a whole like nostalgia boner-esque like wave of horror. And in ways that things like Stranger Things, like we mentioned earlier, it and other movies just owe it a debt of gratitude. I think that the Film Flamers podcast and horror over the last decade would be nothing without It Follows. So, I mean, four and a half stars is probably too low for this movie. Five is probably more apt. But well, if you did, then it would be one of eight movies that we've ever both rated five stars. Really? So that's tempting. But if it's not, then don't do it. 
perhaps on a subsequent rewatch. We're slowly, over years and years, cultivating and synthesizing a list of top 10 five-star movies. So that we can eventually go back and do a top 10 episode of our... Oh my God, I'm tempted to change it just to do that. But I don't know. I have to stay true to this because, I mean, like, I've watched this movie a good, like, handful of five times. And it's always that fucking pull scene that I'm like, I don't know why it's in this movie. Then don't do it. Yeah. And I'm not? Yeah. Okay. I think uh, four and a half is an excellent rating. It's obviously an excellent rating. Yes, it's an excellent movie. So, finally, who's the hottest guy in It Follows? Naked rooftop grandpa. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, I think it's. um, I think it's the long hair. Greg. Yeah. Yeah. Same. Right, neighbor Greg. Yeah, neighbor Greg. Mm-hmm. Not Hugh. Like I think Hugh's kind of douchey. His white long johns. Mm. Of course, that was it. Follows. That was <laughs> yeah. the it. Follows guy. Right, smashing windows. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Greg for sure. I mean, like out of the three main male characters, like I think that he is obviously supposed to be the most heroic looking. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think he was cast specifically for his look because he doesn't offer a whole lot to the movie except for being a valiant person. Yeah to take something away from someone when ultimately the valiant person really in life is the one that is there for you that you would quote unquote settle for. You know what I mean? But Hey, fuck Mary kill. Yeah. <laughs> I think I know what it is. I think it's a mini tentacled hentai porn demon. <laughs> Sexually transmitted mini tentacle porn. <laughs> I can't even say it. It's too many words. <laughs> the specificity, the specificity of it all. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on It Follows. As always, we want to know if you follow. Follow us on social media, at The Film Flamers, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, X, Threads, whatever you want to call them, we're there. You can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Oh, shit. (laughs) You stepping on my line? (laughs) jump into my giant above ground pool so you can bam bam me in the ham ham <laughs> <laughs> that wraps up our conversations about uh, Valentine Horror on the main feed but we do have a bonus episode over on Patreon this month where I am showing Chris a movie that I loved back in the early 2000s called Valentine <gasps> so apt that's right how did it take us five years and five, how did it take us five Februarys to finally sit down and watch Valentine? I don't know. We saw and watched My Bloody Valentine. Either That's one. true. But this one has David Boreanaz. He's uh, also in a Crow movie randomly. My goodness gracious. Head over to patreon.com slash the film flamers to get that bonus episode and all of our bonus episodes. Join the family. There's a whole chat going on over there. Finally find a way to give us a review uh spotify apple podcast itunes wherever you can do it we're gonna read that on the next shooting the flames well roberts yes chris i think i finally lost it so i can have some (sighs) sweet Sweet dreams dreams.